Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod, Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. All right, it's the Pain Points of Wealth. This is episode four. This is the news in plain sight. You've seen the headlines. We give you the real story. And guys, I hate to do this. It's our fourth episode. And it just feels like the only thing we can talk about is tech. But you know, I saw the stats this week and they're just getting kind of mind numbing. Now think about this right now. The entire US tech sector, Bob and Chris, is worth more than all of Europe. That means every stock in Europe is worth less than the tech sector in the US right now. That's insane. Well, first of all, Rye, I don't know why you're complaining about us making so much money in tech. And secondly, so what if we're better than Europe? You know, we're the United States of America, for crying out loud. Where's your patriotism? Yeah, but you know what, Dad? I think Ryan has a good point. Like, I remember Ryan's first job out of college. He went to work for one of these dot-coms. And if you guys remember at that time, people were like investing in these dot-coms like there was no tomorrow, having absolutely no idea what they did but they still managed to pour money into these things until the music stopped and the market corrected. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, I do. And that's the thing. But I mean, back then, none of these companies had earnings. At least these companies have earnings. Some of them do, but actually some of them don't. <laughs> you know, That's the thing. People say, like, look at Peloton. Someone asked me about that stock the other day. It makes no money. <laughs> and it's worth you know roughly $15 billion right now. That's the thing that blows my mind, guys, is let's be real here. Wall Street was totally wrong about the rebound. No one on Wall Street, maybe we did, just saying, but no one else on Wall Street predicted we'd have a V-shaped recovery. That's what we had. So how is Wall Street going to be able to predict when these stocks and tech are too high? Well, of course, they don't know, Rye. The future is unknowable. Nobody can predict the future. But you know, let's just take the point you made. The European stock market back in 2007 was worth four times the US tech sector. So if you were smart enough to take money out of Europe and buy tech back in 2007, you should be smart enough now to take some money off the table in tech and buy Europe while it's on sale. Well, you know what? It's kind of like the most famous investor I know, this guy Warren Buffett right now. You know, he's not buying Apple, he's not buying Tesla, he's buying overseas. Like I think recently he bought something like 5% of four or five different Japanese companies that not only is he getting at a big discount, but they're also paying good dividends. And last time I checked, growth stocks don't pay a ton of dividends. So you're telling me Warren Buffett's out there buying international, energy, and Bank of America financial. He's buying what everybody's poo-pooing on the financial media channels. And meanwhile, everybody's worried about, where should I buy Apple? Well, the problem is, guys, and we talk about this all the time, the retail investor is going to end up holding the bag. Because think about this. you know, Tesla going through the roof right now. What does Tesla do? They go out and raise more stock. <laughs> and that dilutes the stock for everybody else. But the public is going out and taking it while Tesla is the only one that benefits from that, not the shareholders. Meanwhile, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, sold $130 million worth of his Apple stock while the public is buying. And I can see it over and over again, but it always seems to me like the retail investor is going to be the last to know and the last people to buy. You know, Rod just brings to mind, that's one of my old indicators. When the company wants to sell you their stock, it's not the time for you to be buying their stock, right? If it's such a good deal, why would you sell? Would you sell your company if you thought the company was going to go up a thousand fold in the next couple of weeks? Yeah. And speaking of Tesla, guys, and this is the thing, things are getting extreme. If you look at all the electronic vehicle companies in the world that trade publicly, they're almost worth more 
than all the traditional automakers. And last time I looked, there's way more traditional cars on the road than electronic vehicles <laughs> or electric vehicles. Yeah, well, Tesla is worth more than Walmart, right? Walmart does 20 times the amount of sales, actually makes a profit, pays a healthy dividend. Tesla makes no money. Now, this just goes back to like what you used to tell Ryan and I when we first got started in this business is that this price of the stock should be somewhat in line with what the company's earnings. And if you look at a company like Tesla right now, I think it's trading at something like 215 times forward earnings. But you know what, guys, it's not just Wall Street. I had a couple of clients out play golf with the other day. And all of a sudden they're going, well, you know, have you ever been in a Tesla? It's a really nice car. It goes really fast. <laughs> You know, and it's not even a car company, it's a battery company. So if you look at it that way, all of a sudden you have people who know nothing about Tesla or trying to prove the valuation is what it should be, as opposed to let's call it what it is. It's an overvalued speculation. Well, the problem is the worst purveyors of this information is going to be the street. <laughs> Again, it's Wall Street will justify these earnings or lack of earnings, I should say, in valuations. It doesn't even matter. They're going to tell you that they're going to go up forever. And that's like the worst place to be because once this turns. Unfortunately, guys, my crystal ball broke. But once this turns, you know it's going to be ugly. There's going to be no warning signs ahead of time. Like That's the problem is everyone's getting deluded to believe that it's okay for these companies to be worth as much as they are today. And it's not. Well, the thing is, it's just like Bitcoin. Remember when Bitcoin became the hot thing and it was going up every single day and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger called it something you wipe off your shoe? You know, they didn't really think... <laughs> too highly of it. And you know, everybody sat around in wonder going, okay, how high is it going to go and when's it going to collapse? Well, it just happened with the NASDAQ. NASDAQ just went up 80% from the March lows. And you know, hey, those great companies in the NASDAQ. It's a great index, but you know, nothing goes in one direction forever. Well, the other thing to think about too is guys, just like simple math. If you take the top five tech companies, right? Facebook, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Apple, they generate about $650 billion in revenue. Okay. That's worth almost as much, if not more than Europe. Europe, if you take all the big companies in Europe, create about $10 trillion a year in revenue. So that's $650 billion versus $10 trillion. There's no way that math works that those tech companies should be worth more the same. Well, you know, it seems to me like owning some of these companies, owning some of these stocks seems more of like a symbol of social status than an actually valuable investment. I mean, I have so many people that I know, friends or otherwise, that are constantly telling me, oh, guess what? I own shares of Tesla or I own shares of Amazon. The same thing, going back to your point about Bitcoin, people are always really excited to tell you that they own these things, thinking that they're so smart. Hey, Chris, it wasn't that long ago when I had the same conversation with my clients. And it's like, Bob, I own Exxon. I own Chevron. I own Occidental Petroleum. Now, what do people say about energy stocks? Oh, yeah. They don't say much because they're doing horrible. <laughs> you know. So, And I think that's the thing. It's like, look, yes, tech is doing well. And unfortunately, no one's going to tell you that magical day when the tech bubble or this tech move is over. But the thing you always want to do when it comes to investing, and we've learned this over and over again, is be proactive, not reactive with your investment strategy. Diversifying your money probably makes sense if that's what the smart money is doing. And it's like happening in plain sight, hiding in plain sight. Well, you know, over the last couple of weeks that our move as portfolio manager has been to let's take some money off the table. Let's take some money out of growth while it's up big and buy value and buy international. And, you know, I got pushed back from maybe one or two clients saying, no, 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 Bob, this is for real. This is going to go on forever. Well, yeah, sure it will. But there's a time to reap the harvest, right? There's a time to plant a different crop and it's one of your indicators. So if you feel like, oh my God, I love that sector the most, it's probably smart to take some money off the table. Well, you know what, Dad? If the two greatest investors of all time, Bob Payne and Warren Buffett, say that's a good move, I have to say that I feel pretty confident in it. Chris, who's this Warren Buffett? I mean, I'm very, very familiar with Bob Payne, but Warren Buffett, I never heard of the guy. 
Well, you know, right when they write articles about Bob, he's sometimes listed in the subtext somewhere. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight. Speaking of Warren Buffett, and I think he's just so good at common sense. Back in 2011, I forget it was when gold was trading at like $1,700 an ounce. He basically made this analogy that you could have owned all the gold in the world. It was the equivalent of owning 16 Exxons, all the productive farmland in the US, when you talk about the billions of dollars it could produce versus gold, which produces nothing, by the way, and has no industrial value. And at that point, his point was gold is way overvalued. And of course, gold did nothing for like a decade. You're starting to see the same obvious things happening now. There's no way tech is valued correctly versus other stocks. To your point, Chris, which produce a lot more revenue and income than these tech stocks do. Well, this is the whole lesson, I think, to be learned. The historical rate of return on the stock market over the last 100 years, last 200 years, has been 10% a year, right? Well, we opened our doors in 2009 at Payne Capital, and our large growth, our tech companies are up 18% a year. That's 80% over the average. Now, boring blue chip value stocks are up 11% a year. So value is acting exactly the way it's supposed to. Growth is overacting, right? It's misbehaving and to your benefit. So when all these people, all these pundits on TV say, oh, value is horrible. It's underperformed. Give me 11% every year for the rest of my life and I won't ever call you again. Well, you know what, Dad? They say that value outperforms growth over time. And I have to say, if you could get value at a cheap price plus great dividends, I think that's a great buy. You always say, Chris, you get better outcome with more income. And Chris, if you give me that offer with a set of steak knives, you'll have me at hello. And this is a guy that worked for that tech company, Chris, and we still don't know what he was selling. <laughs> okay, guys, just to wrap things up here, I think a good way of looking at it is like, you know, markets are like a pendulum swinging between fear and greed. And we saw extreme fear back in March when the markets sold off huge. No one believed we'd get this rally. Now, all of a sudden, the pendulum swung all the way the other way, specifically in tech stocks. And just like a pendulum, it'll keep moving in that direction until all of a sudden the momentum will stop. And then bam, it'll turn on a dime, go the other direction without any warning. That's why you need a proactive investment strategy, not a reactive strategy. Right. I love your thought about the pendulum. But to this day, I didn't know you were a swinger. So I learned something new on this podcast every week. I hope everybody listening does as well. All right, it's the tipping point where we pinpoint the pain point having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And you know, this segment this week actually comes out of the fact that Bob and I always come up with amazing ideas when we're drinking wine on his porch. Go figure. And Bob, you know, one of the things we were talking about this week was the fact that it's a huge opportunity cost not investing your money. I think most of us think, well, stock market's kind of risky. I'm being safe by putting my money in cash. And the reality of it is you're actually you know, more risky sitting in cash long term because of purchasing power, right? Things go up over time, cost of living goes up, and investing is actually a necessary evil. You have to grow your money to keep up with what the cost of living is. Is. So really sitting in cash is a guaranteed losing investment when you think about it long term. You know what, Rye? I've actually sat around and listened to you and dad talk while you've had a couple of glasses of wine. And I'm going to say that it's not the most inspired conversation I've ever heard, but I digress. But I do want to talk about something that you said. And one thing you said is that you know cash really isn't going to get you where you need to be. So let's look at that a little bit. Right now, and you're probably getting less than 1% in your money market. And over time, inflation goes up by over 3% a year. So basically, by sitting in cash, it's going to guarantee you to lose money. So what occurs to me is that you really have to be invested. You don't have a choice. And if I look at like the day I was born in November of 1980, the Dow was at 920. Today, as of the recording of this podcast, it's at 27,500. And if my math is correct, 
That's a 3,000% return. And that's doing a little bit better than my money market fund right now, Chris. I'd say substantially better, Dad. But see, that's only half the tale because equities, stocks, investment in great American companies, great companies, global companies, that's the only true hedge against inflation, not just because the stock price goes up over time, right? Not only was the Dow at 920 when you were born, but it's never been back there over your 40 years. But the real key to equities as a hedge against inflation is dividends. Now, here's an interesting point, guys. When Chris was born, a dividend yield was 2%, and here we are 3,000% higher on the Dow, and it's still 2%. How can the dividend stay the same on a 3,000-point move? Well, the obvious math here is if you're getting 2% of 900, which was the year Chris was born, that's a lot lower than getting 2% on 27,500, right? So, And that's a good point, Bob. It is about the fact that cash flow goes up over time. And I always wonder, you know, and we see this all the time, like when the market sold off back in March, and people get crazy and they want to sell their stock. And I always think to myself, like, why in the world would you sell all these cash flow producing investments while they're down? But I don't think people see it that way. I think we see it as a piece of paper you know, that goes up and down in value with forgetting that the fact that these are real assets that are paying real cash flow year over year. Like You would never sell real estate property that was paying you nice income just because the market was soft. That's crazy. Yeah, because that's the whole thing. If When you look at big blue chip companies that pay dividends, not only do they pay them every year, they increase them every year. So a company like Procter & Gamble's increased their dividend every single year for 64 years in a row. If the stock goes back down, down to where it was when Chris was born, you'd have a 30% yield on the stock buying it today. But because the stock market goes up over time, the dividends go up over time, it keeps pace with each other. So that's the thing that I think most of us don't realize is that the reason equities are the best hedge against inflation is they increase the cash they pay you. Well, and think about it this way, right? Because it's almost like the ultimate, we call it arbitrage, because let's say you had $500,000 today, and let's assume inflation has averaged 3% since World War II. Well, in 20 years, Chris, what's your $500,000 worth if you just sit in cash and hope for the best, like many of us are doing right now? $500,000. <laughs> You're wrong. You failed at being a financial advisor. You're fired. It's worth $276,000 today. So think about that. Every half million dollars you have today sitting in cash in 20 years is basically cut in half. Wow, that's a guaranteed 50% reduction. Guarantee you're going to lose 50% over the next 20 years. I don't think I'm going to sign up for that deal. I know. That's the thing. It's all fear motivated. You think because the value stays the same on the statement that you're not taking risk because it's that hidden cost that we talk about of inflation. You really need to hedge your bets. You have to diversify. You don't put all your eggs into the stock market, but you got to have a few eggs there because dividends are real. They go up over time and you need that cash flow because last I checked, Ry, you can't buy lunch with deflated dollars. I heard that doesn't work. So the question is, all right, we know that inflation is real. We know we're guaranteed for our money to get cut in half. And we know that the market's been going up over my lifetime. And Bob, just out of curiosity, you were born in what year? I know it's impolite to ask. But 1953. What was the Dow in 1953? Is under 200. Oh my God. Jesus, Bobby should be rich. <laughs> so we know over your lifetime, our grandparents' lifetime, their grandparents' lifetime, pain's going back to Ireland's lifetime. The market's been going up in perpetuity. So why are we so afraid of the stock market? I think the bigger question is, why isn't everybody rich? I think the answer, that's pretty easy. The answer is fear. People are afraid that they're going to lose all their money. I think that's the biggest misnomer, Chris. I see it all the time. It's like people actually believe, some of you actually believe that when the market goes down, you lose whatever you had in. 
And when it recovers, you don't have skin in the game. You know, your shares don't disappear when the market goes down. People actually think that. So over time, you know, markets are volatile, right? There's peaks and valleys. But if you just hold on, you get that total return over time. Yeah, and exactly. And what it comes down to is just to keep your money the same, it needs to grow. So, you know, going back to that example, guys, of having $500,000 today, well, that has to grow to $900,000 in 20 years just to buy the same thing that $500,000 buys today. Like, you have to figure this out. You know, you can't just sit there and hope, as Bob likes to say, right? Hope is not a strategy. And I remember one time when I just gotten out of college, I was in my first job and I was buying my first car and I asked dad's help. And he told me to call all the dealerships and see if I could get another 300 bucks off the car sale. And I said, dad, you know what? I beat these guys up enough. He said, fine, go to the ATM, take out $300 and throw it out the window. And I think that right there should be good reason enough to put your money into the stock market. Because otherwise, in that example you used earlier, I, I don't know anybody that would take $275,000 and throw it out the window. You know, Chris, I remember when you did that and I remember giving you that advice, but I've been giving other investment advice in over 45 years. And it's just, I can never understand why you want to panic out of the stock market when it goes on sale. When prices go down, it's an opportunity to accumulate income generating assets, inflation beating assets when they're on sale. But it's that fear. And I think that, you know, it's really about education. Once you know, and yes. you go back and you see, just like you, Rye, just like you, Chris, just like me, that stocks have gone up over our entire lifetime. Yeah, they make pullbacks, right? They have pullbacks and corrections. They never get back down to the best buying opportunity you ever had, which was the day you were born. Yeah, and it's a good point, Bob. It is about education because when you start thinking about it, it's actually rigged in your favor. You know, right now is the perfect example. You know, inflation is actually lower today. It's like 1%, yet the dividends from a diversified stock portfolio are close to 2.5-3%. So you're already assuring yourself to get cash flow that's well above what the cost of living is. So it's like just understanding that dynamic is huge because just understanding that you already have an advantage over almost like everybody else. And you know, one thing that I always taught you guys is that people will always do what's in their best interest, always do whatever is in the best interest of their family to better their situation. Well, last I checked, all these companies are run by people who have families who want to do the best they can to improve their situation. Their goals are aligned side by side with your goals. I mean, well, who better to be a steward of your money than people who are going to make even more money if they do well and they do well for their family? It means they're going to have to do well for you at the same time. I can't think of a better proposition. Another way said, Bob, is the stock market has been giving you an offer you can't refuse over your entire lifetime. If you want a more in-depth look at your finances, well, Bob, Chris, and I have spent a collective 45 years involved in financial planning and investing. Everything we teach you here on this podcast can be mixed with some due diligence of your own to get ahead financially speaking at any stage of your journey. But if you have over $500,000 and you want a more hands-on approach or guidance, you can apply for a free financial review at www.paincm.com slash financial plan or click on the link below. We can put together a full audit of your investments, the fees you're paying, tax optimization, and a complete savings and income plan to ensure you're on the right path to achieving financial independence. Simply go to paincm.com slash financial plan for your free financial review. All right, gents, the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. Bob, 
whatever country we're from, we think our country is the best. In fact, the Hong Kong listed S&P 500 only has about 200 million in assets, whereas Americans have in the US S&P 500, 154 billion. That doesn't surprise me at all, right? I read an article years ago about a financial advisor who was working with a billionaire in Taiwan. And he said, you know, you need to diversify your portfolio. Because you know, I rode to the office, every company in town you own stock in. He said, well, diversify where? He said, well, you should put some money you know, out of Taiwan and put it in the United States. He said, are you kidding me? That market's risky. So we all have that home bias. We think that because the company's in our country, it's safer than it is somewhere else. And, you know, you want to look at your own portfolio and see how bad is your bias right now? Yeah, exactly. The foreign markets do just as well as U.S. markets over time, even though a lot of people don't like to hear that. All right, Chris, as recently as 2013, Exxon was the largest U.S. company with a market value of about $415 billion. It has now shrunk to less than $100 billion. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, but it doesn't really surprise me. You know, you talked earlier about how fast the pendulum can swing. And, you know, furthermore, Exxon also was recently essentially kicked out of the Dow 30 to be replaced by Salesforce. And I actually read a very interesting article that said that companies that actually tend to leave an index will outperform the companies that are new to the index. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with Exxon. I'm bullish personally. NYC Blues, Bob, less than 10% of Manhattan's 1.2 million office workers are estimated to have returned. The city has a 20 percent unemployment rate, double the national rate, and an $8 billion projected deficit and its $90 billion budget for the current fiscal year. Ouch. You know, Ryan, I think everybody has an opinion on what's going to happen to Manhattan when this pandemic ends. And I really don't know. I mean, I was up there with you a couple of weeks ago and it looked pretty busy to me. And you told me, no, it was a ghost town. But I think what you have to really be careful of is make sure you don't have money invested in New York City bonds. They're not revenue generating bonds. You don't want to be an owner of commercial real estate in Manhattan right now. So there's a lot of lessons you can learn as an investor. How New York ends up, it always seems to survive. I remember the 70s, everybody wrote it off, came back like gangbusters. Hopefully it happens again. I'm not moving. All right, Chris, you have a 46% chance of losing money if you hold the S&P 500 for just one day. So it's almost like 50-50 odds. But you only have a 6% chance of losing money if you hold for 10 years. Well, right. That sounds like the difference between being a gambler and investor, because if you're only investing in something for one day, you're a gambler. But if you hold on to something for the long term, you're now an investor. How about two days, Chris? You're a hybrid at that point, I think. <laughs> nice. Cash is king, Bob. Nearly 13% of economic activity in the US is still in cash. That's roughly $2.7 trillion. That's a lot of pizzas you can buy without the IRS looking. That's pretty interesting because I have a lot of friends when I go out to dinner and I bring out my credit card, they all want to give me cash. I'm not so sure why that happens. It might have something to do with taxes, but I'm not going to go there. I don't think you can even buy a Cadillac anymore in cash like you could in the old days, like the mobsters used to do. I thought everybody drove a Tesla. <laughs> Counterintuitively, market returns during years with tax increases have been higher on average and more consistently positive than the typical year. For example, despite a tax increase in 2013, stocks rose more than 30%. The market was supported by below average valuations and a significant rise in monetary stimulus. Well, it just goes to show you, Rye, that the market's always going to be right and the investing public are going to be wrong. I'm getting a lot of feedback right now that certain things change with our tax code in the near future that the markets are going to take a big hit. So this is a very interesting statistic indeed. So what you're saying, Chris, is invest now. Don't wait for the outcome of the November election. Exactly. Well said. 
And lastly, Bob, when the insider buy-sell ratio jumps above one, meaning there's more insider buyers of company stock than sellers, the US equity market increases about 25% in the one year after and 54% over the next three years. There have been only 11 months when the ratio reached above one since 2004, the second highest reading was in March this year. Well, that insider buy-sell ratio rise batty a thousand because what happened in March of this year is we had the shortest bear market in history. And it ended March 23rd. We started a brand new, big, booming bull market. Won't surprise me to see a 54% move in three years. Matter of fact, we already had an 80% move in the NASDAQ. So Bob, when the insiders are buying, you don't want to be on the outside looking in. Great show today, gentlemen. As always, stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully, you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Oh,